You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself and Walker. In this session, we're looking at combat casualty care with Ed Barnard. So what I wanted to do is just examine the bleeding patients in the tactical and combat environment. I wanted to dig into some of the fundamental education that's challenged practice in recent years. And I also wanted to look at the sequential approach to bleeding and some of the second and third generation hemostatics, the pharmacological agents, tourniquets, uh, a little bit around neck wounds and injuries, blunt and junctional wounds, and then also hypertensive management as well. So what we wanted to do is examine the utility and the success of um, some of these highly interventional skills at near or point of wounding. And also look at traumatic cardiac arrest and the utility or not of an algorithmic approach to to management. So as as I said before, I've got Ed Barnard with me. Ed is an EM consultant within the Cambridge University Hospital Group. He's also undergone subspeciality training in pre-hospital emergency medicine, working more than five different EMS systems. He's also an educator and mentor and has students and doctors in training and gives national and international lectures. He also is completing a PhD, has published over 30 articles uh, within journals and received some international awards along the way. He's also, if that wasn't enough, a senior lecturer for the military. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. Thanks, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Ed, if we could just start with getting your perspective on the sequential approach to external hemorrhage control and maybe just some of your anecdotal experience of whether it's worked for you and or clinicians around you. Yeah, sure. So I think what you're getting at is this approach of, a, of, of first applying diet pressure to a wound and elevating the wounds that, and then thinking maybe about trying to control that uh, bleeding from a pressure point where you can get to the vessel above um and then on to things like um arterial limb tourniquets i think i think probably the the patients that i tend to see um either militarily uh, or in pre-hospital civilian practice we're really conscious that every drop of blood is precious to these patients and those patients tend to be those who have lost a decent amount of blood might have other injuries in the chest or the head as well so in those patients i think typically even if working in a small team we'd want to control hemorrhage really quickly and not lose any more blood than is absolutely necessary. So although the um, sequential approach or that ladder approach to bleeding is important overall, particularly for dealing with someone who's sliced, you know, nicked their finger when they're cutting up some food in their kitchen, I think most patients we go to, we often see or often do place a tourniquet to get immediate control, look at other aspects of the patient in terms of airway breathing, and then come back to that later to then, in lots of cases, remove that tourniquet, apply direct pressure, maybe use a novel hemostatic dressing with that. So I think it's a really important paradigm and one that we'll continue to teach and talk about. I think in reality, in severely injured trauma patients, we know that even a small amount of extra blood loss is really important. And there'll be other things that we need to do in a small team with only a few pairs of hands that we're going to use a tourniquet probably uh, more readily um, than you might think from looking at that um, escalation of bleeding control. So looking at second and third generation hemostatic dressings, uh, some of the learning I um, got around sort of using these dressings was really getting it to point of bleed. And, you know, there's no point in having a fancy dressing or indeed an expensive dressing acting as a sponge um, and indeed not really 
providing any hemorrhage control or indeed providing the uh, the pseudo clots which is needed at point of bleeding could you maybe speak to some of your salient points or salient learning points around these dressings uh, as as you've used them yeah sure so i think um a few important points up front the most important one probably is that they use with direct pressure um not instead of it right so you are, you're using this hemostatic dressing whichever one you choose um, and I can't remember what's first, second, third, or even fourth generation, I think is now described. Um, so yeah, it's direct pressure with the hemostatic dressing. Each product's different, of course. So you need to read the instructions for the, uh, the dressing that you carry on service um, and need to do that before you have to use it on a patient. And then you raised the point as well that it should be applied to the source of bleeding, not around it. Now, the history of hemostatic dressings is pretty interesting. I won't go into it in depth, but basically there were some developments, um, I think, in in a slightly amateurish way um, after calls from the US government to uh, rapidly innovate um, novel hemostatic agents, essentially. And some of those first agents um, used uh, something called zeolite, which I think is volcanic ash, and that caused an exothermic reaction um with water against it and by that what i mean is it got very hot so that caused some concerns about burns around the wound um there were some reports of rescuers getting in their eyes which of course are wet on the front so they get you know uh, potentially corneal burns as well all of that's gone away and what we essentially now have are either mucoadhesive agents or procoagulant supplements um there are two products so there's a wealth of literature looking and uh, at these and comparing them to either each other or two gauze. And there's limited evidence, really. Um, well, no good evidence between different versions of hemostatic dressings. And, uh, uh, and I would say limited evidence as to whether they're better than well-placed gauze. So just to cover that off quickly, um, so quick clock combat gauze and sea locks, I think are both third generation, might be fourth generation, but those are the two that you'll probably be exposed to. The US military, I think, moved from quick clock combat gauze to Sealox as well in the recent past. And Sealox is manufactured, I think, in the UK. And that has been the uh, hemostatic dressing of choice in UK defence for uh, recent years. And that's a bit flaky, uh, can be difficult to pack into a really tight space. And that leads me on to the bit I just said earlier about... Although there is evidence from the animal lab and some limited human data demonstrating beneficial effects of hemostatic dressings against simple gauze, one thing that is different is the ability to tightly pack and quickly tightly pack um, these into a wound. And if you've handled gauze, even if it's the like little five pack for um, that you'd use when you're putting a cannula in, it's really pliable, really soft. So that can be pushed in really effectively um, against something that's bleeding with direct pressure attached. So. I think they're here to stay. They've definitely got um, some, you know, popularity. Um, and uh, I think the things to remember are know the kit that you're using. So read the instructions before you need to use them. And remember that you need to apply direct pressure through that dressing. It's, it's not a substitute for applying pressure. So shifting tone slightly and or focus and just looking at sort of self-application tourniquets, Ed, for, for a minute. Um, have you sort of seen the decreased trend in usage of tourniquets sort of due to successful other means of hemorrhage control? And I guess I'm asking this question because, you know, within my practice over 20 years, I probably have only put a handful of tourniquets on because of successful primitive methods, so to speak. But what's your perspective? I think... I'm actually seeing and have seen an increase in the use of tourniquets. 
Now, part of that clearly is about availability. So I don't know about where you work. I mean, obviously, militarily, everyone's got tourniquets on them and they're all over the place, right? For obvious reasons, which I think we'll discuss in a minute. In civilian ambulance services, they're also really widespread now. So every EMS vehicle in my region um, has a blast um, you know, bag. So I think once you've got the tools, um, you, you know, you're going to start using them. So we... It's, I don't infrequently see them on, uh, you know, pre you know, nasty pre-tibial lacerations, for example, to try and control hemorrhage. So I think there's probably more of an issue around inappropriate use than there is around, uh, you know, people not using them because they've got other means of hemorrhage control, i.e. novel hemostatics, which, as it happens, are in the same bag, I think, in most people's kit as the CA tourna case. So, and that's not necessarily a bad thing if it's not causing uh, very acute tissue damage. Um, but I, in answer to your question, um, I'm absolutely not aware that I've seen a reduction uh, in in these tourniquets. But as you say, um, the, you know, the frequency with which they're used in our civilian practice anyway is so low that it'd be difficult probably to pick up any signal in that. So looking at sort of the concept of arterial spasm uh, for a minute, Ed, and, and recoil, and sort of maybe some of the resultant atrogenic sort of hemorrhage control that occurs from from recoil um could you could you maybe see speak to sort of whether you've seen that yourself in practice yeah interesting i, I guess we all think about um the black hawk down film uh u.s forces in uh in Mogadishu with this don't we and i can only think of a single patient there's probably been a few but i could think of a single patient delivered to us um in a uk deployed facility who had been uh, blown up, I think, steps on an IED, uh, non-UK, non-coalition forces, uh, and had been transported in the back of a pickup truck uh, and um, literally delivered to our facility. And I don't think we got exact timings, but it was something like, you know, 90 minutes, two hours from the time of, of um, injury to arriving at our emergency department. And this patient was obviously, you know, pale, collapsed veins, in severe hemorrhagic shock, that had quite high um, amputations uh, through the thighs, no tourniquets applied, right? So this patient hadn't exsanguinated to death, but had held on. Of course, as soon as you started filling them up, then blood started pouring out of their legs uh, and uh, I needed new acid tourniquets. So um, in terms of, is there still a role for tourniquets? Uh, the answer is absolutely, you know, absolutely yes. And there's not very good data because no one would let us do a study now, clearly, of tourniquet or not tourniquet for a high bilateral amputation however um i think the best data we've got is probably um from the us that was published in joe trauma in 2006 by joseph kelly which took two different time periods with about 500 patients in each and that spanned the introduction or the reintroduction i should say of arterial limb tourniquets to combat medicine and what we see in these data is an 85 percent reduction in mortality associated with extremity um, injuries and that's probably the best evidence that we're ever going to get. Um, I think in terms of lessons that uh, in my brain, when I talk to people about um, the use of tourniquets, particularly around blast injury, is in civilian practice for blunt amputation, we try and place that tourniquet as close to the um, injury as possible to preserve as much tissue. The problem in blast is that um, in some situations that uh, muscle and other tissues are flayed away from the femur typically. So what you need to do in those casualties is to think about placing a tourniquet a bit higher, because if you place it right down by the wounds, there's a lot of destruction um, more proximal to that. 
uh, which will continue bleeding. I think the other thing about blast really is that you, you, you know, you would typically get uh, quite nasty perineal and buttock injuries, uh, which are uh, like relatively easy to miss, I suppose, if you've got clothing on, don't roll the patient. So it'd be highly suspicious of a patient, certainly with an above knee amputation from blast that they had a perineal and or, uh, you know, large buttock wounds, which need packing. And the use of the pelvic binder in that situation has got two, has got two roles. And the first role is, it's really, really useful at holding in packing and first field dressings and blast bandages into those wounds in the buttock. The second one is we know uh, from some not very good data that I did uh, that if you've got a single above ankle uh, blast amputation, you have a one in five or 20% chance of a pelvic fracture. And if you've got bilateral above ankle amputations in the field, then you've got a 25% or, or one in four chance of a pelvic fracture. So those, and it's also associated with um, abdominal um, solid organ injury. So those are a few of my sort of take-homes, I guess, for that, that lead from your question. I think the other thing to mention probably is bone bleeding. If you've been in a situation where you've had a fractured bone with an amputation um, and it's very difficult to get that bone to stop bleeding, and there's no really good answer to that, um, you know, hopefully it's not too catastrophic and you can use novel hemostatics and, uh, you know, diet pressure, but a tourniquet isn't going to stop that uh, bleeding. So Ed, just looking at neck wounds for a minute and just looking at sort of zonal borders um for those that might not be familiar around zone one to three could you maybe just speak to the zones of the neck and indeed which zones in your mind sort of carry the greatest mortality yeah sure i think the first thing to say is it's taken me about 15 years to remember which is zone three and which is zone one but i'll more than happily go along um yeah so zone one is um in my mind clavicles um, to the inferior border of the cricoid um, uh, cartilage in the neck. And then zone two is includes all the cricoid up to the mandible, uh, up to the angle of the mandible. Um, and then zone three is uh, from the angle of the mandible up into the uh, base of the skull. Um, I think probably also important to mention that, you know, penetrating neck injury has to go through the platysma, which is that thin muscle layer uh, on the front of your neck. And also people talk about uh, neck triangles, so I can remember being taught as a medical school and never really knowing why it was important. But most of the vital structures in your neck, so large blood vessels, airway, esophagus, all lie within the anterior triangle, which is the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid, or that muscle you can feel running across the side of your neck. Um, so that's the um, that's the anatomy. I think um, I'm not aware of any consensus guidelines for the uh, management of uh, penetrating neck injury in the pre-hospital setting. And it's, it's, it's all kind of ED based, which you can translate a bit. But of course, you know, we haven't got CT. Um, I think the first thing I would say about that, though, of course, is that what you see on the outside might not necessarily be what's on the inside. So although you might see a penetrating wound in zone two, uh, you know, there could be structures uh, in zone one or zone three that are affected. Um Zone two is the most common site of injury, which you you know might expect. I think it's the largest in terms of actual size, um, at, at about ten or twenty percent in both of zone one and zone three. In terms of issues that you're going to find, um, I think they're pretty obvious. Really, uh, the first one, if we go and sort of, I guess, forgetting the small C at the start, I will go with A first. But in terms of airway, you've got problems with expanding hematoma causing airway distortion, which you know might cause airway obstruction, but also causes problems with you trying to insert a, 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 an endotracheal tube if you're intubating the patient. 
Um, and of course, also be aware of blood in the airway with the use of video laryngoscopy. Uh, I've been caught out a few times now, as of my teammates, um, with that camera. Seems to be a magnet for blood. So as soon as you put it in, you can't see anything. Um, there's some decent data from the US military on on, on plan D or, or front of neck access in patients with uh, neck injury. And these are typically plan Ds that have been done by uh, you know combat medics on the ground. So cat badge medics, not people, you know, uh, not doctors, not nurses, not uh, you know, not paramedics. So relatively, um, you know, relatively basic training. Um, I guess the next thing is probably hemorrhage control, isn't it? So, you, you know, obviously you can't put a tourniquet around the neck. Well, I guess you could, but it's not ideal. Um, and so you're left with diet pressure, uh, you know, gauze and uh, hemostatics. Um, that, there was a product um, that I've not seen for a little while that was, uh, I think still recommended by the US military tactical combat casualty care guidelines called the IT clamp which essentially is this rather barbaric bit of kit that's a sprung piece of plastic with little teeth in it. And that has been, um, I think that's still recommended by TCCC uh, for use in neck wounds. So you, uh, that grabs the skin either side and uh, uh, and bunches it together. Um, I guess what other learners of the neck is around C collars. So cervical spine collars are generally uh, not used as much as they, uh, I think, have been previously. And a real concern with neck injuries is that you're going to cover up anything uh, that might be changing in the neck. Um, so you can imagine if you've got a C-collar on a patient's neck and they've got an expanding hematoma or you thought you controlled the hemorrhage and it started again, you're going to miss those structures. We also know that um, uh, neurological injury or cervical spine neurological injury is very rare in penetrating neck injury. And if it is present, it's going to be obvious or at least present on the patient's presentation. So less of an issue about trying to control the C-spine, more of an issue about trying to effectively manage airway uh, and bleeding. I guess my experience of these um, sorts of cases is quite mixed, actually. It's quite dichotomized. So deployed, I've got a few cases of patients who were shot um, in zone one, um, and that is a really challenging um, injury to manage. Um, I think pre-hospital, your, you know, your mainstay of management for that is to try and, uh, and apply some direct pressure with hemostatic dressings and move as fast as possible uh, to a surgical facility with a pre-alert while giving blood products en route um, judiciously uh, if you have those available. My other experience of this in the U um, is in the UK, and they're typically zone two injuries uh, from people who self-harmed. Um, so... Uh, I've had a couple recently that have, have gone through the patisma in zone two and uh, damaged the external jugular vein. And, and, and both of those have been pretty easy to manage uh, with a finger and, a, a you know, one piece of gauze. Um, anything else about neck zones and injury? No, I think that's pretty conclusive, actually. And, you know, my revelation was that actually zone uh, zone one also includes the apex of the lung. And actually, it can be quite easy to cause a pneumothorax or indeed tension pneumothorax by a, a zone one injury because i i consistently con consistently forget or forgot how high the lungs can 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 rise and indeed the back of the chest i was always you know the front of the chest is always a, a clear visual indicator but inspecting the back of the chest and the back of the neck actually um was was always one of my um faux pas also 
self-report and i think one of the things i learned from seeing day in day out penetrating injury was never rely on um, patient self-report because they're hyper adrenalized they feel like they've been punched when they're actually being stabbed and actually the self-report is is extremely poor as a objective indicator of 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 injury moving on ed and just looking at um hypertensive management now i think we're going to come on to critical hypovolemia as well but just looking at hypotensive management um would you would you sort of still advocate for hypertensive resuscitation beyond that two hour time frame or if not what would you advocate for yeah it's a great question um and it's a question that causes us um has caused us some thought uh, in military medicine in the last few years with an idea that we're probably uh, moving towards uh, extended pre-hospital timelines in the future, potentially. So I think it's important probably just to review where all this uh, you know, started, really. And this all started in the city of Houston um, with the Bickle paper in 1994, which, which you know, many of you will be familiar with. And this paper essentially randomised patients by day of the week um, who'd had penetrating torsal injury to receive a restrictive, i.e. no, um fl- uh, you know fluid regime fluid resource regime um or their or their standard therapy um and what they essentially demonstrated was that uh, the patients who had a restrictive um initial fluid strategy had a better survival um and this sort of changed the world of fluid resuscitation albeit in a time when there was no pre-hospital blood so these patients were getting lactated ringers which is essentially hartman's um now <clears throat> Since then, we've had some animal studies that demonstrate that if you have a severe hemorrhagic injury, then hypertensive resuscitation beyond about 60 minutes has a um, a burden physiologically uh, that might be unrecoverable. So there's this idea that free hospital, you know, that hypotensive resuscitation may be a, a you know a strategy, not a target for patients with penetrating injury um, up to about 60 minutes. Now, if you look back at the the uh, paper from Bickle in '94. Their mean time um, to hospital uh, from injury was about 30 minutes. Um, and our UK median pre-hospital time is somewhere around 60, 65 minutes, right? So we've got a difference a difference in the timings. We also now ha- frequently have access to blood products. We also don't see outside of London, m- you know, many penetrating torso injuries as tends to be blunt. We also see a whole mix of things with that blunt. Uh, um, Injury to torso, you know, which commonly includes head, which really complicates matters around blood pressure targets. And we've also got older patients. So the mean patient age in the Bickle paper, I think, is 30 or 31 years old. So we're now in a situation where lots of stuff's changed since 1994. Um, we also have a desire to deliver precision medicine, don't we? So applying one broad bush to a whole group of different patients is probably not appropriate. And I say that in reference to older patients whose whose normal blood pressure may well be, um, you know, 150, 160 systolic. So it's a really complex area. And I think um, I think in most, um, certainly in most UKED settings, planned hypertensive resource is probably in consideration for very young patients with penetrating torso injury who have an immediate plan to move to an operating theatre um, to have that uh, controlled definitively. And I think it's a really difficult argument um in all other patient groups i think pre-hospital we might have a window you know particularly if you're uh, going quickly to patients with a penetrating um torso injury who are younger 
and I think it's appropriate in those patients as well. In terms of what we do in the military um, or more remote environments, it becomes a bit more complex, doesn't it? You know, particularly if we're in a situation where we have limited blood products and we're looking at one, two, three, you know, four hours, what do we do with those patients? What's the strategy? And clearly, you know, there are some potential easier solutions. One of them is a walking donor panel. So that's, you know, warm, fresh, whole blood. Um, and then after that, you have novel interventions. So things like the AAJT, which isn't that well tested, which is the abdominal aortic junctional tourniquet, which in some respects is kind of a poor man's zone three Reboa, perhaps. Um, and then, of course, we have um, Reboa. Um, so I think I probably... I think the most important thing about all of this is it's really complex and it's and it's in some ways individual to circumstances and the patient in front of you. So I think the most important thing to do is to have discussions in your clinical team before you're in a situation where you have to make these complex decisions um, about the patient in front of you. So I've, I've not really answered the question, Ian, um, but it's a bit too complex and it you know it's definitely not a yes/no answer. No, absolutely. Um, and you're right, full of nuances, actually, according to the patient in front of you. And could you speak to critical hypovolemia from a sort of definition perspective and then sort of uh, prospectively how to navigate that from your from, from from your experience? Yeah, thanks for that, Ian. So I think um, I might have put this phrase in your head. And um, I know in the UK, we've got this sort of real um, sort of fixed idea about systolic blood pressure less than 90 in other countries, it's a systolic pressure less than you know, 100. And there's also some literature looking at shock index, which is heart rate divided by systolic blood pressure. And a normal value of that would be 0.5 to 0.7. And then more than about 1.0, we're you know, thinking that it's comp a patient's compromised. Um, so I don't think we've got a definition, or I certainly haven't got a definition, of what critical hypovolemia means. And I think... Um, if I'm thinking about it now, I think they're probably patients who look pale, ask for a drink, start breathing more quickly, stop moving about as much and become less conscious. Um, so, you know, those patients who fulfilled the hateful eight criteria um, of sweaty, pale, clats, veins, lower fall against harder CO2, hypotension, air hunger, a um, heart rate that's abnormal and altered mental status. So I think it's quite dangerous to try and put a definition against um what this is in terms of you know millimeters of mercury or a shock index something else i find useful although we don't use it pre-hospital is a base deficit so a base deficit of greater than six i'm starting to get you know concerned that the patient in front of me is hypovolemic if, if they've had trauma um, but that's not very helpful in the pre-hospital setting so i think my definition would um would be along the lines of the hateful eight um and it's that patient who you look at, probably can't tell necessarily instantly, but after a very small amount of time, you can see that their trajectory is one of uh, you know worsening signs of hypovolemia, not necessarily uh, a cutoff of uh, systolic blood pressure. In terms of navigating it, um, I think what's really useful about some of the more modern approaches to traumatic cardiac arrest is that the patients who are sicker in this group can have the same treatment, right? So they're likely to have the same things that we're trying to rapidly reverse in traumatic cardiac arrest. The benefit of this group is uh, we can use a graded approach. Um, so TCA protocols don't normally allow for individualization of treatment, but we could apply a TCA algorithm to these patients with some individualization. So an example would be uh, not doing finger thoracostomies, 
uh, in a patient who you're pretty happy doesn't have a pneumothorax, for example. So looking at um, sort of from an interventional perspective, Ed, we spoke about blunt abdominal injury or indeed pelvic injury and interventions such as zone three Reboa, which are complex interventions actually. And, you know, from my experience, actually um, really difficult when there's adjusted or destructed pathology in front of your face, trying to find the appropriate anatomy. Could you speak to your thoughts on whether these interventions from a, from a military perspective are better at point of injury or better in specialist centers? Yeah, of course. So I, I should caveat this at the start by saying that all of my experience with intraortic balloon occlusion has all been in uh, well-regulated large animal translational research. So my PhD is all about the strategies for the pre-hospital management of critical hypovolemia, which means I should probably be able to define critical hypovolemia better than I do. But um, So essentially, this has pretty much all come from the recognition that during um, the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, um, the highest number of potential um, survival um, uh, patients uh, with, with some bleeding in the chest, abdomen and pelvis, um, and that's and there was a new term coined, non-compressible torso hemorrhage, or NCTH. Uh, and that comes off the back of the fact that, you know, extremity limb um, hemorrhage is easily controlled with the tourniquet, as we saw in the paper from, from Joseph Kelly in um, in 2006. So we're then left with a situation where there's bleeding in the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and a requirement to try and work out how we're going to manage that before the patient can get to a surgical facility. And what came out of that was a joint UK-US group of surgeons putting forward the idea that um, intraortic balloon occlusion uh, would be a potential solution to this. Um, so this was actually first seen in 1954, um, and there's a US uh, military doctor who used the catheter in two patients um, in, I think, the Korean War who had non-compressive torso hemorrhage. And then it was forgotten about for a long time afterwards. And then since 2011, we've seen a bunch of large animal translational studies which seem to show that Reboa is you know, really useful, um, certainly in pigs uh, who've got bleeding in the abdomen and pelvis. What we've seen since, so a number of case series, uh, predominantly, well, the first ones were out of the R. Cowley Adams Shock Trauma Centre in Baltimore, um, which looked really promising. And what we've been left with now, though, I think, certainly from my perspective, is this elephant in the room of how do I know the patient in front of me needs Reboa? So it's not without risk. And I don't, I'm not completely sure that the iatrogenic complications and potential risks of intraorsic balloon occlusion have been well described to date. Uh, and we've got this situation where we know that earlier intervention in hemorrhage is likely to lead to better outcomes, but Reboa is not risk-free. Some patients will survive without it. And then we've got later intervention, i.e. a patient's already in traumatic cardiac arrest, albeit maybe a LARP at state in trauma or lost. There's a better benefit risk ratio in that group of patients, i.e., they're you know more likely to not survive without Reboa. But then you've got the question of will Reboa still be affected if I wait later? And there's a really difficult um sort of decision making around that. Now, there's lots of things we could possibly do to try and um mitigate some of that risk benefit ratio or manipulate it in our favor to make a better decision earlier. And these are things around uh, you know obtaining early femoral access. Um, because clearly obtaining femoral access in a hurry in someone who's even more shut down uh, is more difficult. We're then also hoping that we get some data from the UK Reboa trial, 
um, which uh, I guess might be released in between me saying this and the podcast going out, but was stopped early by the trial management group and we're still awaiting uh, what the, um, you know, what the issue with that was. And then we've got the evolution of um, Reboa devices, you know, Reboa 2.0, uh, which may reduce some of the risk associated with this device, um, which would change the risk-benefit ratio. So a bit of an unknown at the moment. Um, now, having said that, we talk about Ribera as one thing, and of course, you know, you'll be aware that actually Zone 1 and Zone 3 Ribera are quite different things. So Zone 3 Ribera is a balloon sat at the aortic bifurcation, predominantly used to control pelvic hemorrhage and very proximal lower limb hemorrhage that can't be tourniqueted. Uh, whereas Zone 1 is above the diaphragm, you know, near the arch of the aorta. So clearly the ischemic burden for the rest of the body, uh, the effects on cardiac afterload, probably causing subendocardial myocardial ischemia, um, and lots of other bits and bobs, spinal ischemia, renal ischemia, uh, are, are quite different to zone three. And there's international consensus now, I think, that zone one should be inflated for an absolute maximum of 30 minutes. And that really limits its use in pre-hospital care, because that means that you've got to be pretty close to a facility that's capable of handling that zone rubber. And there are problems, uh, well, not problems, I guess there are, you need um, some people who know what they're, who know what they're doing when that balloon comes down. So there's a, you know, uh, likely to be some hypotension, hypokalemia, all sorts of other uh, metabolites. Um, zone three, however, we know can be up for considerably longer than that. And so, you know, zone three, I think, in terms of your question, and I will get back there at some point soon, uh, is probably more likely um, to be of use in my mind um, in a uh, civilian setting, certainly. Now, in terms of military trauma, we're interested in it um, from some different reasons, um, and that is really around limited um, surgical capacity at somewhere that's really far forward, potentially with one operating team um, who are busy um, in a different patient's abdomen, and then another patient arrives who is about to exsanguinate from non-compressible torso hemorrhage. So in that scenario, we're not using Robert pre-hospital, albeit, well, I guess it's sort of pre-hospital. It's not in a big old hospital. It's in a tent probably. But we're using Robert in that situation to literally hold that patient while the surgeons um, are able to uh, move on to another patient. And that's quite different probably to using it in a patient pre-hospital to get them to a surgical facility. So... I've probably given you an idea through all of that spiel that it's not a very simple technique. What, um, so I think, you know, you're going to struggle to be, you're going to struggle to be delivering this intervention without a physician, I suspect, unless it gets a lot simpler in Reboa 3.0. So then you've got the issue of these patients are relatively few and far between. And our gap analysis from TARN data was a bit over generous probably, but that suggested that even at the busiest trauma centers, in the UK, uh, you would see one eligible patient every six weeks. Um, and so pre-hospital, you're going to be struggling potentially to find the right patient. Um, now, of course, we don't know who the right patient is, maybe, as we don't really understand who's going to most benefit from this, which I'm happy to talk about more if you're interested. Um, so in terms of the answer to your question, uh, is it worth the investment at point of injury? Um, I'm not sure that... Um, I'm not sure that it is, uh, simply because the number of patients who may benefit from this um, and how long you can have the balloon inflated for before you need to get to a surgical facility are both really compromising factors at the moment um, for making this, uh, you know, a solid recommendation. 
So just shifting pace slightly, and I suppose going to the end of the spectrum, really, and looking at TCA, so traumatic cardiac arrest, um, I've got a number of questions really for you on traumatic cardiac arrest. I guess the first one would be around sort of the survival bias that we've seen within in empirical studies and 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 maybe if you could speak to some of the survival bias literature uh, and or numbers um before we kind of i guess get onto the nuances of algorithmic management but yeah just the, if you could speak to the the survival bias numbers or reporting of numbers yeah i think tca is my favorite topic so i'm pleased you've asked about it so what we saw um in the 80s and 90s um were a few reported studies that basically demonstrated an extremely low survival from traumatic cardiac arrest um so this led to an idea that actually it was a futile endeavor of more risk to the rescuers than it was of any benefit to any patients and of course that's a self-fulfilling prophecy so if you don't resuscitate any patients who are in tca none of them survive and therefore the survival is zero percent now what we've seen um, since 2005 is a, I guess, almost a paradigm shift in reported survival and reported is a really key word here. And what's really helpful is the European Resource Council guidelines in 2005 and took a systematic review of sorts and synthesised um, the overall survival rate from TCA and those studies. And that was reported at 2.3%, so really quite low. And that's against the background certainly in the UK or even in Wales, of a medical cardiac arrest loss discharge of around 7.98%. What's happened since then is there's been data from London's Ambulance and places in Europe, some data from the Trauma Audit Research Network um, here in England and Wales, and some data from the UK military, which shows this, which appears to show this sort of upward trend. Um, so if you look at the data um, that was published between 2005 and 2010 alone, we see that actually there's a nine. 0.7% survival reported. So a massive increase from, you know, 2.3%. And then our military data, 2003 to 2014, demonstrated an 8.7% survival. So that actually exceeds what we'd expect from medical cardiac arrest. So that's all good news, isn't it? Um, having said that, and I said reported was a really important word, we haven't been including the same patients in these analyses. So in 2000, and I forget now, but maybe five-ish, there was a definition for the first time of what traumatic cardiac arrest was. And that definition from the European Resource Council included patients um, who had agonal absence, spontaneous respiration, and absence of a central pulse. That's important because a lot of the studies in the 80s and the 90s only included patients with cardiac electrical asystole. So their heart's not beating at all, and there's no electrical activity, which you would imagine from exsanguination certainly is pretty much an unsurvivable situation. So we've got the situation with this definition from the ERC that includes more patients. And what's important about that is the extra patients are less dead, which is a terrible phrase, but hopefully you understand what I mean. And by less dead, what I mean is the cohort that they added to that group were those who weren't in asystole. So they had ongoing electrical activity. You just couldn't feel a palpable central pulse. And that brings me to one theory, although not proven, about the military data, which was that a number of these patients were in the back of tactically moving helicopters with not much light. You're wearing gloves. And so trying to palpate a central pulse in those circumstances is a little bit absurd, particularly if you've got very low output. So there's a reasonable chance that there was a number of those patients included in the military analysis who, if you were in a resuscitation room with good light, uh, no vibrations, nobody was firing at you, 
that you'd feel a central pulse and they would never have been declared as TCA. Anyway, so we've got that issue. We've also got this thing, hopefully, that we now believe that tyrannocardic arrest isn't futile. We know that tyrannocardic arrest is different, both in etiology and hopefully treatments to medical arrest, hopefully been advances in trauma care. And all of that has led to a higher reported survival. The other thing that's really important to mention is survivor bias. So certainly for data in the UK, I think in most parts of the world, you need to survive to hospital to get a trauma number to be included in these data sets. <clears throat> so our denominator is only including patients who are transported. And anyone who's done more than a few days of pre-hospital care will know there's a decent proportion of patients who we sadly resuscitate or try to resuscitate unsuccessfully pre-hospital and, you know, and don't convey. So the data I published uh, uh, from Tarn, 2009 to 2015 demonstrates a 7.5% survival to hospital discharge, which grossly overestimates that, you know, those numbers. More recently, we've gone into some uh, pre-hospital data in the east of England, looking at just over 9,000 um, cardiac arrests, of which only 3% were traumatic or 304, got a lower median age than medical as you'd expect, and they're more male. Um, and, and the survival of those patients was, um, I think, 3.8%. Although that still underestimates it a bit because there's a proportion of patients who have traumatic injury who we never start a resuscitation attempt in. So my own personal estimate is that we're somewhere around two and a bit percent maybe. Um, so where we're at with it is that we've had, I think, probably some some false reassurance in the last decades that things are, are you know substantially better, although you should always be a bit cautious about that sort of paradigm shift in, in, in survival. And it's multifactorial, but interesting to dissect some of the reasons around how that's changed. I think the reality is, as a group of patients that we bundle together with lots of other patients, uh, and there's a subset that are really survivable. And these are patients who have a low output state in trauma. So the heart is still beating, the blood is still going around, you just can't feel the pulse. And those patients typically require a quite small amount of filling initially to regain a pulse. And those are the ones that we're really interested in, um, together with the ones who've got airway obstruction and those who've got a chest injury leading to large or evolving pneumothorax. And that probably also tells us why we're interested in the things we're interested in when we talk about TCA management algorithms. Yeah, absolutely. It brings me on quite nicely to TCA algorithmic approaches and <clears throat> just the nuances really and, and thinking about, I guess, what's killing the patients. But could could you speak to the nuances, uh, you know, the famous paper by Prof. Lucky uh, et al., you know, the, the hot algorithm, the um, hypervemia, oxygenation, tension, hemothorax. Um, could, you, could you maybe speak to when not necessarily when that's not appropriate, but just 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 the 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 order in which you address the pathology. Yeah, sure. So that um, you know, I think the hot um, algorithm is really was the first part of our change in mindset practically about how we approach these patients. Really, really useful to have an immediate action drill, in the same way that we do for medical cardiac arrest, which is start chest compressions, right, and then that, that you know that buys you time. It's a holding measure. And what we really needed in traumatic cardiac arrest was initially that recognition that it's different to medical arrest, but then also what do we do? And there are some problems with the immediate action drill, which I'll come on to in a minute. The I find it really hard to remember 
what HOT stands for. So I'm really glad that you've just gone through it, although I've already forgotten it. So, and I've stolen this from uh, my academic um, academic boss, Surgeon Captain Jason Smith. So thanks, sir. But we think about oxygenate, decompress and fill. And I just find that easier in terms of, I don't have to re try and remember what that stands for. And I, I, and I know what the immediate priorities are. So oxygenate, decompress and fill is all about what do we think people are not just dying of in trauma, but what do we think they're dying of and we can manage that means they're going to survive? So that's about oxygenate, which is an eye gel or an ET tube. More commonly in my practice now, actually an eye gel because it's super quick. Um, and then oxygenate the patient or ventilate them at least. Decompress is about uh, releasing air from the pleural space. Um, so that is either a needle decompression, or if you have the skill set and equipment, then that's finger thoracostomy. And then fill, which is one of the most important things and probably has predominant, has, you know, runs to the top of that in our military cohort in most circumstances, is all about getting volume loading. And we get our knickers in a twist regularly about what fluid we're going to give these patients. And clearly, warm, fresh, whole blood is almost certainly the answer. It's almost certainly never available. Uh, and there's some good work from DSTL Portland Down in recent years demonstrating that crystalloids better than nothing, quite a lot better than nothing. So if you're working in a service or in a situation where you haven't got blood products, these patients need volume. So preferably warmed, um, but, you know, uh, crystalloids is, uh, is definitely better than nothing. Um, so I've kind of forgotten your question a bit, Ian, but, it, but it's something about the order now, I'm not really sure there is an order in terms of the first bit. And I talk about different steps of approach. And that's step one for me is oxygenate, decompress and fill. The only caveat to that is if you've got penetrating injury that you think may be causing a pericardial tamponade, right? And that goes, there's like a snakes and ladder on my diagram for that. And if that's the case, then step three is think about resuscitative thoracotomy. But that, I've got a little snaky that goes all the way from there up to the top for that. Because we know that in the best circumstances, not pre-hospital, but in an operating theatre, there's up to 20% survival um, in those patients. And then step two includes stuff like um, check or apply, sorry, apply or check if they've already been applied, combat application tourniquets, shake the long bones out to length, um, address max fax hemorrhage, that, you know, that sort of thing apply dressings to wounds in keeping with good damage control sustentation principles. And then step three is about consideration of chest compressions, resuscitative hysterotomy and resuscitative thoracotomy. But that's just the world according to Ed Barnard. So Ed, what's your perspective on chest compressions within trauma? So I think this is a question uh, I get asked the most around the management of traumatic cardiac arrest. And I can think of some really good situations I've been in with um, hemorrhagic trauma um, where I've had to go, you know, on my graded assertiveness scale, I've had to go straight to stop, stop, stop. But on multiple occasions with a patient who um, people won't stop giving chest compressions to, and it's really getting in the way of a, a bit of volume loading. And they're typically patients, I think the last one was a, a patient who'd been stabbed multiple times in his buttocks and groin and was in a lap of state in trauma, and he just needed... A, a, a little bit of filling. Now, if we look at the literature from this, the uh, paper I always think about is the one from Maluna Estal in 1989. And he um, did experiments on large baboons and he bled out uh, these baboons to allow up a state in trauma, essentially. It's like a blood pressure of maybe, I don't know, 40 or 50 systolic. 
He then started external chest compressions on these animals. And what we saw with that was that the systolic blood pressure went up, which is, you know, good. Everyone's happy about that, right? You know, the monitors um, has better numbers on it. But importantly, the diastolic blood pressure went down. And, and what's important with that is the myocardium gets its blood supply during diastole. So what you're doing in this situation of hypovolemia and chest compressions is starving an already uh, struggling myocardium uh, of oxygenated blood and, uh, you know, and substrate. What he then did was stop chest compressions and then give the, the animals back the blood that he'd shed from them. And unsurprisingly, because it was a controlled hemorrhage, uh, they got a return of spontaneous circulation. And this has been repeated in, I think, 2018-19 by the, the team at um, DSTL Portland Down. And they essentially randomised um, five, sorry, um, randomised pigs into five different treatment groups um, after they'd been had 60 minutes uh, of, uh, of hypovolemia. And essentially, the pigs that did the best were those who received um, blood. Uh, and those that did the worst got chest compressions from a Lucas device. So in the setting of, um, in the setting of hemorrhage, we know that uh, the chest compressions have got lower survival than filling alone. They definitely slow filling down. So if you've got a Belmont device, for example, attached to a subclavian line, and you're trying to fill and give chest compressions, that increase in pressure in the chest just stops the Belmont running. It, it makes airway and ventilations more difficult, uh, gets in the way of chest decompression. It likely worsens thoracic injury, so you're pushing broken ribs around. And of course, it increases the risk to the rescuer, and it makes us all very tired and stressed. Um, so that's quite an easy answer. And I think this is where this de-emphasis of chest compressions has come from. And the military is probably responsible for a good part of that because it would be atypical for us to suggest chest compressions in somebody who is exsanguinated. Having said that, we don't treat um, young fit soldiers in civilian pre-hospital practice. And when looking through the data from the east of England on cardiac arrest that I mentioned earlier, we discovered something really interesting, I think, which was that um, the presenting rhythm, i.e. the first cardiac rhythm recorded by the ambulance service in these patients in traumatic cardiac arrest um, had a difference in age. And by that, what I mean is people who had a shockable rhythm, VF or VT, were significantly older than patients who presented with a PEA, or as I call it, a lost relapse state in trauma. And that leads us to believe that there's a group of patients who are who are older, who have a primary medical event um, leading uh, to a cardiac arrest and then have trauma. So the classic is, uh, you know, driving a car slowly into the Armco barrier on the motorway, but no massive trauma, but the patient's in cardiac arrest, or a patient who has a cardiac event like a stroke uh, and then falls over um, uh, and and um, has an injury. So a typical one that we and I see quite a lot uh, older patients we arrive at TCA and they've got a bloody nose from falling over but the initial event was actually medical <clears throat> now in these patients we know that chest compressions and early access to a defib is absolutely life-saving um, and so we've got this sort of difficult situation where although we want a single immediate action drill for patients with tra traumatic cardiac arrest I'm not sure it's entirely applicable because there are patients who absolutely need chest compressions early on as part of their sort of ALS algorithm. And then there's a group of patients, you know, are those who are bleeding to death or have bled to death um, who uh, absolutely don't benefit from chest compressions. So that's, so that's uh, a sort of difficult um, area to sort out. 
So Ed, just coming to land on the conversation and just looking at your um sort of reflective practice really. And I suppose it's it's a it's a question around sort of um is there any approaches or mindsets that you have now um through the evolution of your experience that you didn't maybe have five years ago? Yeah, sure. Um I mentioned one of them already, I think, which is around the um, small amounts of non-blood product in certain settings. And that really comes from two things, really. That, you know, first of all, comes from the work at DSL Portland Down demonstrating that, um, you know, crystalloids better than nothing at all, albeit we're sort of very wed to the idea that it's only balanced blood product resuscitation. And clearly we can't, you know, give patients seven litres of crystalloid because they're going to do very badly. Um but I would now, in some settings, give patients who've had trauma, who are not obviously exsanguinating, a 250 mil warm crystalloid bolus in the ED just to see how they react to it. Um, I think the second one is around chest injuries. Um, and the committed trial uh, has recently started recruiting. And this is all about how we manage um, small to moderate pneumothorax. Um, and we know that there are risks iatrogenic risks um, from inserting a chest drain or a finger thoracostomy. So is there a group of patients in whom we don't actually need to insert a chest drain or do a finger thoracostomy at all? And certainly my practice has changed over the last five years in respect to this, where I used to have a very dogmatic approach of all these patients who in any way unwell are probably going to get their chest decompressed. So I think the use of ultrasound has helped with that, but I think we're going to get a probably you know, hopefully a nice answer out of the committed trial, which essentially is randomizing patients for chest drain or not in small, moderate pneumothorax following trauma. I think the, my other one is really about um, speed. So I sometimes talk about uh, the HEMS benefits or the benefits of HEMS, and I can hear a bunch of registrars in the East of England sighing heavily as they hear this. And I think about time intervention, decision-making, education and support to EMS or TIDES, and I've got an increasing recognition, I think, that although we need to move quickly pre-hospital, um, I think there's sometimes a bit too much emphasis on that. And clearly patients that we've spoken about today who are bleeding, uh, you know, they need to move quickly to somewhere that can gain surgical control. But there's a group of patients we go to with, for example, traumatic brain injury without a lot of bleeding elsewhere. Um, who need a really careful approach aimed at high quality neuroprotection, including a pre-hospital anaesthetic. And um, we've done some work over the last few years, which we're hopefully about to publish, looking at the differential determinants of post-fear hypotension. And that's has some really interesting bits to it. And it, it really highlights to me that, you know, there are some patients who don't need blind speed pre-hospital. You know, they need a, a, a sort of graduated or more sensible approach to that, really. So I think, in summary, the speed of pre-hospital interventions uh, needs to be more nuanced to the patient in front of you. And my last one's really about civility, um, which I've, you know, I've certainly had in the last few years uh, in my emergency medicine practice in and, and out of hospital, I've got an increased appreciation of how individuals' behaviour or my behaviour can detrimentally influence the people around me, and not just for that job, but for the rest of their day or even longer than that. Um, so I'd really encourage um, anyone listening, if they haven't seen it before, to take a look at the Civility Saves Lives programme available online. 
Yeah, listen, that's fantastic. And those recollections are, are absolutely gold. W- what I will do is I will signpost in the show notes to the to both the uh, articles that you mentioned within the interview and also the civility saves lives. I'll, I'll signpost that that link so that people can can look that up. It just leaves me to say thank you, Ed, for the last hour because I really appreciated both your reflections and your perspectives. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Ian. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. 